please turn in your Bible to Psalm 73 today. I've told you we're taking a break for part of the summer from our studies in Matthew to look at some psalms. Psalm 73 is a great psalm. It's a favorite of mine. I will not hide that fact. It's one I actually did preach on in two parts ten years ago. So you think the pastor's disengaged and into reruns for the summer, but that's not exactly the case. I've I've reworked this quite a bit for this time for you, but it is a psalm to look at very carefully. We're going to look at it in two parts, this week and next week, seeing a godly person in a state of of difficulty and great confusion, and then next week, today we'll just see him beginning to recover from that a little bit, but next time we'll see the fullness of his recovery and how he the, the clouds and the smoke of uh, things that diluted his mind clear away, and he gives God wonderful praise by the end of this psalm. So listen as I read Psalm 73. It's not a psalm of David. The author is Asaph by name, author of about 10 different psalms, and we'll read the first 20 verses of this psalm. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens that are common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence, and from callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, people turn to them and Drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued and punished every morning. Now, if I said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely, You place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And this is the reading of God's holy word. Maybe you're like many people when you have read or considered the Ten Commandments. You tend to think 
that the commandments move from the most serious offenses, having other gods before the only true God, down through other serious offenses like murder and so on. But somehow your mind said to you, well, as the commandments go downward, they get less serious. And by the time you get to number 10, the commandment against covetousness, your mind says, well, you know, that's really sort of a small thing. Exodus 20.17 states that 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or wife or manservant or maidservant or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Well, we don't have too much trouble these days, I don't think, coveting oxes and donkeys, but we covet BMWs and really nice houses and other things that belong to our neighbor. It does seem as though covetousness is a more innocent fault than murder or blasphemy or adultery, but in fact it's a corrosive attitude of the heart that plagues people with distorted vision as they look around the world so that they can hardly see anything in a true way at all. And as long as we're envying and and caught in the clutches of the things of this world, our feet are truly slipping in terms of our stance upon God's truth. It's very difficult to live in the suffocating materialism of America today. It's nice to be comfortable. Just about everyone here is comfortable in a relative sense compared to almost everyone else in the world. But then we have to deal with these hundreds of commercial messages that are bombarding us in every way daily saying, buy this, have this, you need this. You will be more beautiful. You will be more successful. You will be more contented if you have this. And our minds secretly work on these things. And we think about the vigorous health that somebody seems to enjoy alongside maybe your wrestling with something like arthritis or another disease that plagues your days. Or somebody's much more beautiful than you are. And well, it's nice to be beautiful. Beautiful people get a lot of attention and acclaim. Somebody lives in a nicer house or has a better salary or more education. And it's very hard to keep simple envy, which you might call the common cold of all sins, from working at us. It tends to breed ingratitude. It feeds a a, a mentality that tells us we are victims, that things are unfair, and it even fosters a kind of hostility towards our God. The author of Psalm 73 was this man named Asaph. We don't know an awful lot about him except that he was apparently the choir master of Israel during the time of Solomon when there were glorious, large choirs in in whole festivals of worship. So here was an accomplished musician if he was one of the choir masters. He was a poet, possibly second only to David in terms of the ability to commandeer language and express praise to God, and he's author of about 10 psalms altogether. I have a personal connection here. It was around 30 years ago in my young manhood when Psalm 73 began to speak very powerfully to me. It was a time when I was still a young pastor, maybe a half a dozen years in the ministry then, 
And I was trying to get a focus and a grip on my own calling. Where did I belong? How was I supposed to carry this ministry forward? I had a growing young family. The difficulties of minister's income as a church planter, and believe me, church planters are kind of at the bottom of the scale as far as pay and benefits go, and I was feeling a little sorry for myself. There was a real tendency to look around and see people my age doing well, young doctors finishing their residency at that point in time, getting launched on their medical careers, something I once had thought I would do. And a little pity party was going on. Oh, God, you know, why is it? Everybody seems to be doing well. Everybody seems to be in a better place. I'm missing out. This psalm became an anchor for me as God opened it up, and it has been in many ways ever since. Today we look at how Asaph almost had a breakdown of trust in the living God. He states trust in God in the first verse, but from then on, he's talking about a problem, verse 2 onwards. Next week, I hope to show you how the, a God-centered and God-stimulated recovery from this brink of envy and covetousness brought this man back, really, to new heights of praise to God. The last part of this psalm is absolutely wonderful in how it exalts the believer's security and belonging to the Lord. But for today, we're primarily going to look at the scope of the man's problem, and that first of all. What is his problem? Verse 1 says he has confidence. Surely God is good to Israel. He's good to those who are pure in heart. But, okay, what's the but all about? I've got a problem, God. And the problem is my feet are slipping. I have nearly lost my foothold. I'm sliding into cynicism and self-pity. This man had the instinctive feeling that God ought to reward people who trust him, and he should punish people who scorn him. And it would be great if that would happen rather in an immediate way so that you could see godliness means security and prosperity. Wickedness means suffering and bitterness. But Asaph looked around, and he saw nothing but exceptions to that rule. And we see plenty of exceptions daily, don't we? Too often, truly wicked people prosper. Unscrupulous villains build fortunes by trampling on the innocent, stealing their identity, cheating them out of life savings. And they go on and, you know, have their offshore uh, accounts and escape the government and seem to just do great. Celebrities are paid absurd sums of money while the working poor can barely manage to put food on a table or buy medical care. Righteous people suffer injustice by others who just walk away unscathed from their evil. What are we supposed to think as we watch these things? When it seems the godly people suffer and the sinners appear to heedlessly thrive, Asaph was at least to be commended for his honesty. He bared his soul here and said, I almost lost it. When I saw the disparity between what was going on in the world and what, how it seemed things ought to be, and I actually began envying the ungodly people. I almost slipped, if we translate the original 
word there, he's, it's a word that indicates slipping, indicates falling so as to burst apart. You know, you drop a clay pot full of something and it smashes all over the place. That's what Asaph was saying. I, I was almost in a fall that was going to be a disaster because of what I was seeing going on around me. We've all been there, haven't we, in some manner? Materialism. We see what other people have, and somehow the fact that we have more than 80% or more of all the people in the world doesn't seem to matter. We don't have what that person has. Another person's talent, another person's success. We're in a job that seems to be going nowhere, and another guy who doesn't seem to have any more gifts than me or less has got the big promotion in the corner office. What's going on? And you can easily be isolated by this kind of thinking of envying other people or coveting things that you don't have until you feel like you're all alone and you're the only person in this situation. That's, Asaph was very isolated here. He had convinced himself that, you know, he was the only one who wasn't doing great. Everybody else was coasting along in this life without stress or pain. He was in great distress. That's the scope of his problem. But secondly, I want you to see how this problem worked on him. Asaph proved an important truth here as he showed us that envy of the ungodly is actually based on a mirage. This psalm uses some wonderfully colorful expressions. The King James language especially, if you're a middle school student, or I'm not sure what year they teach you about similes and metaphors in school these days, but you could find some wonderful ones in the language as he describes these people whom he envies, especially, as I say, the the King James language has in verse 7, he says, their eyes bulge out with fatness. Verse 9, their tongues take possession of the earth. They wear pride as a necklace. This is quite a poet here, developing his imagery as, yes, he's looking at people who he thinks are enviable, and he's overstating in obvious ways how they seem, how they appear. And you see the, the appearance has outgrown the reality. It's, it's inflated beyond the reality. There are several particular issues that Asaph had as he looked around at at people that, that formed this envy, this difficulty in his mind. One was the health of these people. We don't know whether he had some kind of disease, perhaps, or some kind of health difficulty, but these folks he looked at, ungodly people, seemed immune from disease. Or if they ever did die, they seemed to die painlessly. Well, that certainly is a fiction. You go to any cancer treatment clinic, and you'll find the the company owner or the tycoon sitting there right beside the near-homeless person receiving their chemotherapy and getting just as sick one as the other. Asaph was intimidated by the speech of these people, the way they talked. They talked arrogantly as if they were in control and, and they knew all the answers. Their tongues strutted around, Asaph said as if they governed the world and needed all, knew all the answers and, and could write 
best-selling books and science textbooks explaining everything about the world according to atoms and human behavior and psychology and sociology and politics. They didn't need God. If they spoke about God at all, it was as a curse word. And that offended him. Verse 10 says another thing. He found these people to be very popular. It was as if the whole world came to their feet and just drank up what they had to offer. This certainly makes me think of the whole cult of celebrity, so-called, in the world today. We have exalted this to an art form in our time. Give a young man the ability to put a ball through a metal rim a certain number of feet above the floor, and he has godlike status and godlike income to basically rule the world and behave as every, however he desires. And millions crave the, what that young man has. What does he really have? Well, the ability to use his muscles in a certain way and sort of float through the air and get a ball through a hoop. Why is that something to crave all that much? He's not going to have it in 10 years. The ability's going to leave him. And yet for now, people almost vicariously live out their shallow lives through his colorful, dramatic, wealthy, powerful life. Never mind that this sports hero or some other one may have achieved his great feats through the use of chemicals and steroids. That doesn't seem to matter. We still adore him. You know, the very concept of a celebrity is such a, such a contrived thing. It's so artificial. Somebody decides to create this person and make them so much bigger than they actually are. It's all about style over substance. There are people who are adored who basically have no real talent. They just happen to be rather eccentric or able to express themselves in a cute way or or maybe they wrote something or did something once upon a time that, that caught the public interest, and now they're a person who's famous for being famous. And, and you look at the substance of them, and you say, there is no substance. There's really nothing there. If the media would just move on to the next thing, they would collapse. How deep this envy goes in ways maybe many of us hardly even think. I'm very aware today of the whole issue, and it's a very live issue in the church as well as everywhere else, of, of young ladies, for example, who have held up to them as they go through their adolescence and their teenage years, they have held up a standard of, of beauty and style and, and feminine form in our society. And, and they say, here, this is what you're supposed to look like. This is the body image you're supposed to conform to. And young women absorb that, and they think, oh, that's what I have to, well, I don't look very much like that. What do I need to do about that? And we have the insidious problems of eating disorders and many grievous ills that are even in the church as people feel caught in this envy, this covetousness of, I've got to be like that perfect model. Never mind that her perfect face was created by a makeup artist and a photographer who was able to, to rub out all the blemishes that were there and perfect her in a, in a way that isn't real. But yet, I've got to be like that. Young men 
young boys growing to adolescence and teenage years. They're given a, a standard of the young stud actor from Hollywood, Johnny Depp, or somebody like this. I don't know. I'm not going to pick on him particularly. I just know he's popular right now. And, and here he is, you know, the style, the attitude, the look, the hair, the behavior. Never mind the fact, and this isn't commenting on Johnny Depp is this way, but, but never mind the fact that some young actor who I admire might be a, a, a young man who abuses women left and right and beats up his girlfriends and shoots drugs into his veins. And if you knew him in a close relationship, you wouldn't in a thousand years want to be his friends. But to look at him on the screen or on the magazine page, oh, he's to be admired. Young people... James Bond does not exist in real life. He does not exist. He never did. The women he loves don't exist in real life. I remember the tragedy that occurred in my teenage years when Marilyn Monroe, the icon of beauty that our society had elevated into such a bizarre creation of the movie producers, committed suicide at age 36. I felt sorry for her. I felt like here was a young woman who had, who had had such an image created that it was an image she couldn't even live up to, and she knew it, and her despair overtook her. Are worldly people really happier? Are wealthy people really happier? My wife and I had a very interesting experience that we can never forget. In 1970, as graduate students in Massachusetts, we were, for a short time, resident caretakers on a estate a 16-acre estate in a town where you couldn't even back then build a house on anything less than an acre. This was a lakeside estate. You know, it's one of those driveways with the two pillars at the road, and you can't see what's back there. You have to drive in, and wow, here's this Georgian mansion house with eight bedrooms and the sunken living room and the swimming pool, and I don't even remember how many bathrooms. And, and we lived there and helped care for the place. What was so fascinating was to not only meet the couple who lived there, but their friends and their relatives and their married children. We met a group of people we had never really had access to before in our lower middle class lives as growing up, and these folks were old money. I mean old money. The money had been accruing interest for generations, and their friends all went to Harvard. Their friends owned companies. Their friends played polo on Sunday afternoons, literally. And we learned to be able to see inside the lives of the ladies who came to play bridge on Thursday afternoon and and learn to know a little bit about how many divorces the daughters had been through. And, And you know what? We saw a group of very, very unhappy people, very discontented, some of them almost miserable. They had plenty of money to assuage their misery, but it was misery nonetheless. I seriously doubt if most residents of Water Street Rescue Mission had more gloom or sadness or discontent in their lives than the old money rich that we met in Massachusetts. Covetousness, you see, is founded on a shimmering mirage in the desert. Its foundation is a fantasy. That ideal life that you think someone else has or that is portrayed for you in film or advertisements is no more substantial than a puff of smoke 
It's like a mist that when the morning sun comes out, the, the overnight mist just dissipates and it's gone. Well, now let's look thirdly at how this envy creates a spiritual deception that only the power of God can break. This sin had a peculiar blinding effect on Asaph, and under its influence, he was, his whole worldview was sort of skewed. And in verse 11, he said, could God know what is happening? Does, and he was echoing the thinking of people around. Does, does God have knowledge of this situation? If he knew, why doesn't he do something about it, was the implication. And he was still wailing in verse 13. Why should I be godly when unbelievers seem to have it all? He was questioning, why should I bother with worship? Why should I bother with prayer or, or sacrificial service to other people when those who do this only seem to get paid in either nothing or the coin of affliction? And verses 13 and 14 are kind of the lowest descent into the pit of self-pity. All day long I am plagued by these thoughts, he said. The one commendation we can give to Asaph, he, is, he was honest. He expressed these thoughts in prayer openly. He acknowledged what was going on inside his spirit. I can't help but think of Psalm 2 as a parallel belonging beside Psalm 73 where we read there about the kings of the earth. Those might be literal monarchs or prime ministers or presidents or just the wealthy, the ones who control things, the CEOs, the kings of the earth who strut their stuff according to Psalm 2, and they wag their tongues as if they were really in control of the planet. But Psalm 2, if you read it, says God is not mocked, and it gives you the -the behind-the-scenes look as the true and only king of heaven laughs in derision at the temporary puffed-up pride of people behaving this way. God isn't impressed. Not at all. God is not impressed by the president of Iran threatening the whole world. Where is he going to be five years, ten years, twenty years from now? God is not impressed by little rulers who have their moment in the sun. God is not impressed by the top fashion model who's the epitome of beauty that will abandon her in 15 years. God is not impressed. For he knows the end from the beginning. And quite suddenly, you see in our psalm, there's an abrupt turning. It begins to happen in verse 15 and progresses from there as Asaph kind of listens to himself talking. And he stops for a moment and he says, wait a minute. If I'm going to talk this way, I would be betraying all of God's people for all the generations, all the people to whom he's been faithful Yes, it's oppressive to understand this, he says in 16, but then verse 17 he mentions entering the sanctuary of God. Now, does he mean literally going to worship? I think perhaps he he did mean that. And as he went together to join his voice and his mind and his spirit with the people of God in some gathering of worship, the unreality of everything that had been dominating his thoughts seemed to open up to him. And he took another look at all these people he was envying, and he realized, you know what? These people are going to be swept away in death. It's it's actually a play on words, I think, at the beginning of the psalm when he says, my feet had almost slipped. You know, we like to talk about the slippery slope 
from the disaster from which you go only downwards. He said, I was slipping. My feet had almost gone. Well, look at verse 18. Surely you place them. They're the ones on slippery ground. They're the ones that have no substantial place to stand. They're the ones who are going to go into the grave, and that's the end of them. And that's what he began to see. These people were going to disappear in death like a thunderclap. It came upon him, this glowing fame, this wonderful good health, this arrogance of behavior was going to be gone like the lingering little bit of smoke when you snuff out a candle. And it was the Spirit of God, surely, that showed Asaph this truth that awakened him. As here in verse 15, he said, if, if I was to speak this way, I would have betrayed your children. God, I know you've, you've been good to your people for, for generations. I can't betray them by thinking that way. It seems almost as if the mere fact of being present and having fellow believers in his sights and, and looking at them and thinking about them and not just thinking only about that little pity party going on within himself, he got perspective, you see. The church has a value to us, if, if nothing else, just in that. When we say the Apostles' Creed and we stop and think, people have believed these things for 20 centuries, and millions around the globe today are saying these same things. Does that ever buoy you up at all and make you understand that your faith is not just your own little personal business? There's a giant reason why we need the fellowship of believers. It keeps us on balance And there in the setting of temple worship, he indeed was a choir master. Remember, he was in the temple frequently. He says, when I went into your sanctuary, it was then that my thoughts straightened out and I perceived the end of these people. What was going to happen to them? Catastrophe wasn't far away. When Psalm 73 says that a godly man almost, he didn't lose it, but he almost lost his hold upon true faith, it makes us realize how dangerous materialism is. How dangerous all that advertising junk that gets pushed through your brain really is. How it skews your thinking. And we think of someone who almost fell, we can think of someone who apparently did fall. Paul in in 2 Timothy 4 in the New Testament tells about his friend Demas a disciple who helped out in the ministry of the apostles but sadly turned away. We don't know whether it was permanent or not because we never hear of him again. But Paul says, Demas has deserted me. Why? Because he loved this present world too much. It should sober us to know that Jesus himself was tempted by materialism Jesus, in his humanity, had that testing in the desert before his ministry began. He coveted, not in a sinful way, but he he certainly thought about other approaches to ministry. He thought about shortcuts to power. He thought about easy ways to get food when he was hungry. He almost was ready to succumb to the lies of the tempter, but what did he cling to? the revealed Word of God. And he said, those things aren't true. Those are fantasies. I will not be drawn by those. I will stand upon the reality of God who has spoken. And so it is the mind that is possessed by the Holy Spirit of God that is able to resist 
the stranglehold of materialistic envy and delusion. The challenge to us as believers in Christ is, will we use this? Will we use the possession of the Holy Spirit, the renewed minds, the transformation that really has come upon us as the Spirit takes hold of God's people to evaluate what's actually going on? What's influencing me? How true is that thing that I'm believing, that ideal that is being set before me? Will these rewards that I'm considering last? Are they substantial? Would I really want to change places with a lost soul because right now he controls a a Fortune 500 company and has all the money he could possibly have? Do I really want the good looks or talents of someone who in a matter of years will be a child of hell? Thank God who gives us, through his work in us by faith in Christ, new eyes to see, new values by which to measure. 1 Timothy 6.6 says that godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we'll take nothing out. Materialism, envy, covetousness, all these things may blind us for an hour, for a week, for longer if we allow it. But by the Spirit of God, these things cannot take full ownership of the mind where Jesus Christ dwells. And I love Martin Luther's little word to us. I've Spoken it to you before. Luther said, we can't stop the squawking crows, he called them, of envy and covetousness and worldly thinking from flying above our heads. But as redeemed heirs of God in Jesus Christ, we certainly need not allow those squawking crows to build permanent nests in our hair. May God be the one who gives us new minds to see the truth of the world around us. And Father, we ask for you day by day to clear away the fog and confusion, the delusional lies of those who seem for this moment to be doing really well. We thank you for our wonderful standing in a living Savior, for eternal belonging to you, for forgiveness that lasts forever, for the mansion that is reserved for us in your kingdom. Help us to walk amid the smoke and the fog with these things plainly in view for Jesus' sake. Amen.